0: You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Well, good morning and welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to cover a lot of ground as we move into John chapter 6. And this chapter is a bit of a roller coaster. It displays a whole wide spectrum of reactions to Jesus. Some positive, some negative. And much of it stems from the claims Jesus is making. I mentioned several weeks ago that beginning in John 5, Jesus begins making much bolder claims about himself, and we'll find that particularly true in today's passage. So let's go ahead and first just establish the setting for the passage we're reading today in John 6. John 6, 1 says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So let's pause there and get the setting firmly placed in our minds. Anytime I read scripture, I find it, Helpful to try to construct as close of a mental image as I can of the setting, and, and really try to put myself in the shoes of the original actors to fully understand the depth of the passage. So it begins with after this, meaning sometime after Jesus's encounter with the Jews in Jerusalem. Now Jesus and his disciples have traveled back north towards the region of Galilee, and they're somewhere near the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was also known as the Sea of Tiberius. There's a large, large crowd following Jesus, and later in the passage it tells us that it was about 5,000 men in the crowd. So scholars say that that number does not account for women and children. So if you count them in, it would actually probably make this crowd upwards of somewhere between ten to 20,000 people. So when it says large crowd, it really means large crowd. And this emphasizes just how popular Jesus had become by this point in His ministry. And these aren't just 15,000 Twitter followers or Facebook friends. These are actual people walking across the countryside, literally following him to see what he does and hear what he says. They're putting everything else on pause to witness this incredible man named Jesus. But notice why they are following him. It says, "...because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They were fascinated with his miraculous healing ability." They have come to see a show. But remember, John calls miracles signs because they're meant to point to some greater truth. So we will see if these people recognize what the signs are actually pointing to. So get that image in your mind of an enormous lake or sea surrounded by hills, and you have Jesus and his disciples climb up on the slope a ways up, and they sit down overlooking a crowd of fifteen to 20,000 eager spectators. But there's one more detail That's not here by accident. Verse 4 says, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, this is important for two reasons. For one, it helps us measure how much time has passed. Back in chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple when he was in Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover only happens once a year, so that fact that now it's Passover time again means that roughly a year has passed between chapters 2 and 6. The second Reason this is important is because it overshadows this major miracle in the teachings from Jesus that follow. The Passover was such a major deal. It was, of course, has major themes of sacrifice and atonement and was heavily associated with Moses. Both of those themes will come up in this chapter. And the Passover was a source of major nationalistic zeal as well. Just like the Fourth of July brings out lots of patriotism and excitement about being an American. And being free people for us, the Passover was similar for the Jews. It commemorated God, setting them free from the Egyptians and eventually leading them to the promised land. So just realize that the fact that the Passover was near influences much of what is said and done by both Jesus and the crowd in this passage. And so let's pick back up in verse 5. It says this, This is actually the only miracle that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. There's a problem. Jesus wants to feed these people, but they're out in the wilderness and they have no food. Philip answers him that even with 200 denarii, which was about eight months worth of wages, they couldn't even buy enough for everyone to get just a nibble. But they do find a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And from that meager little mill... Jesus miraculously, miraculously feeds all 15 to 20,000 people. And not just a little. It says that they're, they ate to their fill. And then they even had 12 baskets of leftovers. So now we could camp out here for a while on this miracle, but John didn't put it in here just to tell us about a cool miracle. This is really part of a larger narrative in this chapter. But we do need to see how these people react to the miracle. So here's what it says in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they are about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people recognize that a miracle has just occurred, and a massive one at that. And they decide that this is indeed the prophet. That's the prophet with a capital P. And that refers to this prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15 that there would be Another prophet one day, like Moses, similar, um, kind of synonymous with the Messiah. And remember, this is around the time of the Passover, so nationalistic pride is strong, and they decide that this man must be the prophet. And so they're ready to take him by force and make him their king. And also remember that there's 5,000 men alone here. That's a considerable number of people. So you can imagine them being stirred up into a frenzy, thinking their messianic king is here. And now they'll be able to overthrow the Roman powers that have so unjustly ruled them for years. And we know from the gospels as a whole that the overall hope and expectation of a Messiah um, was that the Messiah would establish his kingdom on earth and restore Israel to its former glory in the rightful lands. But time and time again, Jesus throws a wrench in their plans for him. And here it says he withdrew to a mountain by himself. So Jesus disappears instead of seizing the power that they're so willing to give him. Why? Because that's not his mission. He has a mission so much more critical, so much more important than restoring Israel as a nation. He's restoring all creation, and that begins at the cross. And so we have this incredible miracle but remember, it's just setting us up for what Jesus will say the next day to the crowds. So let's continue in verse 16. And we have this short explanation of how we get from one side of the sea to the other. John 6.16 says this, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough and became because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they are glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So John records this part, but doesn't expound on it or draw too much attention to it. He doesn't include the part where Peter gets out of the boat, but we do have a miracle that's very unique. It's not a healing or A multiplying, but instead it's a miracle that defies all the laws of nature and physics as Jesus walks across the water. Only the Son of God could do such a thing. But John doesn't expound on it really, but it does help connect us to what happens the next day. And perhaps one reason Jesus did this was to avoid the crowds for a little while longer. And I say that because in verse 22 through 24, it explains that the next day there was still a large crowd remaining where Jesus had multiplied the food. They had witnessed the disciples leaving without Jesus, heading across in the boat, so they must have assumed that Jesus was still around there somewhere. They're still excited and trying to find him, so it takes them a while to finally realize he actually isn't there any longer. And then at that point, they climb into some boats and go across the water to Capernaum, still looking for him. And here's what it says in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. So just a side note real quick. If you look way down in verse 59, it tells us that He said these things in the synagogue while teaching in Capernaum. And it's hard to tell exactly when the teaching in the synagogue begins in these verses, but it'll be good to know as we continue in this. But anyway, back to verse 25, you can see from their response that they're still confused by how Jesus got to the other side without a boat. And he could have just blown their minds even more by telling them, yeah, I just walked across the water, of course, but he doesn't. As, we, as we've seen, that isn't his motivation to earn their praise or approval, but instead he rebukes them. And this should probably be read with some anger in his voice as well. In chapter 4, Jesus had already rebuked the Galileans for only believing because they saw signs. But here, he brings an even darker indictment against them, saying that they're only seeking him because he gave them a full belly. They're displaying the basest motives possible. They aren't even here for a show. They want dinner with it too. Again, the warning is that they're coming to Jesus because of what he can give them instead of coming to Jesus to get more of Jesus. But he doesn't just rebuke them. He also exhorts them not to work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Jesus is already using the miracle from the day before and turning it into an illustration and teaching point. But why would Jesus use the word work here in relation to eternal life? It seems kind of out of place since he's already made it abundantly clear that salvation is not something that's earned. And I believe he's setting them up to respond in a certain way because he's speaking the language that they know so well. And they play right into his hand and respond in verse 28 saying, Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God. That you believe in him who he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they want to know, what do they have to do to be doing the works of God? And doing things is their will house. They had no category for grace-based obedience to God. It was only works-based or merit-based in their mind. You do these things and follow these rules, and that must mean you are righteous. But Jesus turns the tables on them and says, here's the word, the, the work of God. You believe in the one he sent. Again, Jesus is always pointing people to belief in Him as the only prerequisite to finding eternal life. It's so simple, but they're they're insistent by making it so complicated. And And I want to encourage us to not do the same thing. Your relationship with God is completely based on His grace. Your acceptance as a child of God is completely based on His grace. There is so much freedom and peace and joy in that truth, knowing that our status before God is not dependent on perfectly following a set of rules, but instead is solely dependent on His perfect, unchanging character. But these Jews, they want to complicate it. They're missing the point. And you can see their unbelief in the follow-up response. Well, if that's the case, then what sign will you do that we may see and believe? They refuse to just believe. They want to see and then believe. This is fragile signs faith here. And they even have the audacity to give Jesus an example of the kind of sign that they're looking for. They reference the time in Exodus after God had used Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And while they're traveling through the wilderness, God sustained them by miraculously sending manna, a type of bread, from heaven each day, as if... The miracle Jesus had performed the day before and feeding 15,000 people wasn't enough. They want something else on an even bigger scale. But Jesus cuts right through it and says, First off, it wasn't Moses who gave you bread from heaven. It was God. Remember, Moses was a really big deal to the Jews. And secondly, the manna was just a type of bread and just a shadow of something greater. And now the Father gives you true bread from heaven. And what is this true bread? It's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is very reminiscent of John's prologue in chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then the true light was coming into the world. So the light and the life of heaven made a home among the dirt of the earth and became like us and walked among us, giving life and light to those who would receive him. But sadly, these people are still blind they say, give us this bread always. This is so similar to the conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well when Jesus told her about the living water, and she wants this water that will permanently quench her thirst. And, and he, he, tells her, he tells them here about this true bread that gives life, and they say, we want some of this special bread. So now let's finish up with verse 35 through 40, and then we'll pick back up here next week. But verse 35 says this, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So they say they want this bread, and Jesus tells him, He is the bread. This statement, I am the bread of life, is the first of what they call the I am statements in the Gospel of John. and This is a new theme that appears That Jesus begins, and we continue to find it in John, really a total of seven particular times Jesus uses this I am phrase. And many people have drawn a line from Jesus stating I am to the title that God gives himself in Exodus when he meets Moses in the burning bush. God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Then Moses asks God, who do I say sent me? And God just says, I am has sent you. He is the personal, the imminent God. And so perhaps these Jews are having the Old Testament scriptures come to their mind when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. But more importantly, Jesus is making a definitive statement about who he is. From the moment Jesus began his ministry almost 2,000 years ago till today, people have wrestled with the question, who is Jesus? Those first disciples asked, could this be the Christ? Nicodemus, he meets with Jesus by Night, obviously trying to find out who he is. He was called all sorts of things during his three years of ministry. He was called Lord, lunatic, a devil, teacher, rabbi, friend, healer, miracle worker, rebel, friend of sinners, a prophet, a blasphemer, a criminal. And even today, if you picked a hundred random people off the streets and asked them, Who is Jesus? you very well might get a hundred different answers. Some might, says he, might say he was a wise man or a magician or a, a, show, a social activist or a pacifist or maybe even Lord or Savior. There's so much confusion around the identity of Jesus, but there doesn't have to be. We don't have to wonder who he is and was, and we, we don't have to rely on someone else's opinion about him because Jesus tells us himself directly and purposefully exactly who he is in these I am statements. And in this first one, he declares, I am the bread of life. And the person who comes to this bread of life will never hunger or thirst again. This is in contrast to what the synagogue crowd said in verse 34. They said, sir, give us the bread always, meaning keep giving us this bread because it's, it's going to run out. Just like God sent manna from heaven continually, they they were thinking this is a bread that Jesus has to keep giving them because after a while they'll be hungry again. But instead, Jesus says, this is the bread of life that permanently satisfies hunger and thirst. So he's obviously not talking about physical hunger because I'm even hungry right now. But he's talking about satisfying a need so much greater than our need for food and water. He's talking about satisfying our need for a savior from our sins. And the satisfaction Jesus offers for our sins is permanent and sufficient. When we're washed by the blood of the Lamb, we are washed clean for all of eternity. And there's two more truths in these last few verses I don't want you to miss. The first is in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Truth number one, Jesus never turns anyone away that believes in him. This should be clear by now in John's gospel that we don't earn our salvation, therefore we can't lose our salvation. But let this be reinforced by these words of Jesus that he won't cast you out. He won't reject, he won't turn away anyone who comes to him in belief. So if you're watching this or listening to this and, and you know you've never come to Jesus, know without a doubt that if you come to Jesus and believe in him, he won't turn you away. But as John 1 tells us, it will give you the right to become a child of God. Then look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Truth number two, Jesus won't let you go. Jesus won't turn you away, and Jesus won't let you go. Those that the Father gives to the Son, those that believe in him, he promises to hold secure and raise up on the last day. This is part of the glorious doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Or if you want to say it another way, once saved, always saved. I can hardly think of a deadlier lie from the enemy than the lie that you could lose your salvation. To let that lie creep into your mind can paralyze your spiritual life and invite in all kinds of anxiety. So I want to exhort you, if you ever feel that lie creeping into your mind and soul, to immediately dash it to pieces with this truth. Jesus won't let you go. Eternal life and salvation are a free gift from God. You can't lose it because you didn't earn it in the first place. God's grace is greater than our sin. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover all your sins, past, present, and future. There's no sin you could ever commit and no devil in hell strong enough to snatch you from the hands of God. Jesus won't let you go. And he says on the last day, he'll raise us up to eternal life with God in heaven. Jesus won't turn you away, and Jesus won't let you go. Hide these two truths in your heart. Don't let those other lies get a foothold in your heart and mind. I've seen people squander years of spiritual growth and effectiveness for God, struggling with these ideas of trying to be worthy of salvation, or worthy of God's attention, or good enough to be saved and kept saved. But you can rest, knowing that you aren't worthy and you're not good enough. And neither am I, but Jesus is worthy. He is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and He has made atonement for my sin on the cross. And there's nothing that can undo that. And if you're a born-again follower of Jesus, you can with confidence say the same words as Paul in Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation... Will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So rest, knowing that the bread of life has permanently satisfied your hunger and your thirst. And if you've not come to Jesus, if you've never trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, make today that day and see that this promise is true, that He won't turn you away. He is the bread of life. And we'll pick back up there next week as we continue, as Jesus hammers home this idea of bread of life and find that, that the crowds, even the ones that, that identify as followers of Him, some have a hard time deciding if this man is worth following. Anyway, thanks for being with us. God bless.